Hey, this is Alan from Praise. So glad that you are checking out this message from our Sunday morning service. We're right in the middle of a series about the Holy Spirit. All we're doing is we're reading about how the Holy Spirit has moved in ages past in order to better understand how he might move today in unique ways where our world might be primed for him to move in our midst. We're calling it the Holy Spirit, rethinking the spirit of our age. Thank you again for checking it out. And I just believe that God's going to move uniquely in your life as a result. God bless. Hey, good morning. Last week, we started a new series called The Holy Spirit, The Holy Spirit, with the tagline, Rethinking the Spirit of Our Age, and it was good. If you missed the kickoff to this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And um, if you're joining online today and uh, missed, you can always find, and actually anybody can find on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, you can find um, previous messages um, and go back and check those out and make sure um, just not to miss any of them. Last week, as we were kicking this series off, I expressed that often when people appre- uh, approach a series like this or they, they are, are, are coming to a series like this, that often they can bring with them a little bit of baggage. Some of those things that maybe uh, previously they've experienced or not experienced can cause Uh, fear for them as they approach a series talking about the Holy Spirit. And what I asked you to do with that fear is to just for a moment, for for some time, just put that on the shelf. Let's just take that, put it on the shelf, we'll come back to it. I talked about the fact that sometimes we can bring our expectations of how this should or shouldn't look. And I just asked for this series, just, and we will come back to it, but just that you would put those expectations on the shelf. Or Finally, a belief that maybe this doesn't apply to you. What I want to do is to just take that for a moment and just put it on the shelf. And so essentially what I'm asking you to do is is to dare yourself to believe, to dare yourself to be brave, and to dare yourself to dream of what it might look like for the Holy Spirit to use you in your circle. So that's what the series is going to be about, but it's also about, at least somewhat, talking about uh, our world today. And specifically, I'm going to say we're talking about the Western world. Um, In in our world, which um, last week we talked about is is a haunted world, And, and again, if you missed it, check it out. But we talked about how much of that haunting is a result of the fact that the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, he was hovering over the waters and calling out of chaos creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that he was, he breathed into us, which means just in the very basic building blocks of what makes you you and what makes me me and all of us who we are is the Holy Spirit. That he is inside of us, that he is holding us together. That's what Acts chapter 17, verse 25 and 28 say, um, that in him we live and move and have our being, that he gives us life and breath and everything everything, that the Holy Spirit who has breathed into us deeper than our DNA makes us who we are. And that's why we respond to the Spirit the way that we do. Amen? All right, the Holy Spirit's speaking to two people today. This is going to be a good service. So glad that those two people are here. The rest of you, meh. All right, so um, I do have here, though, some strawberries. Yeah, yeah, strawberries. You know that strawberries aren't actually berries. 
Yeah, good for you. You're real smart. Um, if you knew that, you're like, yeah, no, that's not a berry. That's a, that's a fruit. Well, did you know that many people would classify it as a false fruit? Because it's the only fruit where the seeds are actually on the outside of the fruit. In fact, botanists would say that in reality, the, the meat of the strawberry is not the fruit itself. In fact, that's the flower receptacle. And so botanists would actually say that the, the fruit is the seeds themselves, that each of those are individual fruits on the outside of the strawberry. Did you know that? Yeah, good. <laughs> I know something you don't know. <laughs> and they're high in, in vitamins B and uh, uh, B6 and C and vitamin K. They're high in fiber and folic acid and, and amino acids. That strawberries are low in calories. That in one cup of strawberries, uh, there is only 55 calories. And yet, even as that's the case, they are high in, in nitrates. So um, that increases your blood and your oxygen flow to your muscles. And so it's been proven, research has shown, that for those who eat strawberries before they work out, that they end up recovering faster, that they exercise and have more endurance as they do and burn more calories. You know that? Do <laughs> you know that the sweet smell of strawberries actually comes from two molecules that form a structure up? a five-membered ring of carbon atoms, and, and that's called furaniol and mesifuran. Did you know that? <laughs> Bet you didn't. <laughs> Do you know that the taste of strawberries is in large part because of two molecules, methyl anthranilate, which is found in grapes and gives it that uh, strong and sweetish edge to the aroma, and a methyl cinnamate, which adds that spicy kind of edge to it. <laughs> but that in some way, knowing all that you now know about strawberries, which I expect you to remember all of that, <laughs> it's not the same as actually eating it. Mm. On Thursday, I test ran what it would sound like to eat a strawberry on a microphone. Because <laughs> I wanted to go for just the right amount of sensuality. <laughs> but not too much that it's awkward. <laughs> I'm not sure we hit it, but like, <laughs> it was close. There's something about strawberries that you can't know until you actually eat one. I have some friends, they're super cool. Suzanne and Kevin Jenkins, I've mentioned them in the past. He's a, or she's a, she's on a board, but she is also a, a food chemist. He, she's a food chemist, but if you know Kevin, you also know that he is a phenomenal cook. Right? Yeah, yeah, come on, somebody. <laughs> Which is really interesting, because she can tell you all about food. They make a wonderful pair because she can tell you about the amino acids and protein chains and tomatoes. But he can tell you from hours of standing at the stove that you don't add salt to tomato sauce until after it's been reduced. And she can tell you 
about the Maillard effect and the rearranging of amino acids and certain simple sugars as you grill that gives meat its brown color. But he can tell you, based on resisting pressure, whether or not the steak is done. And each of those knowledges are unique and important in their own way. And together they form a deep knowing. But I'd rather have Kevin cook my dinner. <laughs> Just saying. Rather have the cook than the chemist make my meal. There's something about knowing. And for us, we have experienced tremendous scientific advancements over the last several centuries. We can now atomize and anatomize all of creation, or at least much of it. We know how things work. We know that everything is made up of atoms and that those atoms are tiny. What, like two billionths of an inch in diameter is an atom. That an atom is smaller than a golf ball in the same way that a golf ball is smaller than the earth, right? We know that about everything being made by atoms, that in one grain of sand, that there is a million trillion atoms. And this makes up everything that we see and we feel and we touch. That is what makes it it, right? And it's amazing. And that type of a knowledge blows our minds. But at the same time, there's also a deeper knowledge that comes along with that, but also goes beyond that. Last week, we talked about our haunted world, and this week, we are going to talk about discovering our disenchantment, discovering in our, our disenchantment, discovering our dis disenchantment. In the early 1900s, there was a, a German sociologist. He actually is considered by many to be the father of sociology. His name was Max Weber. He was German, so his name was actually Maximilian Weber or something like that. Really smart guy. He came up with that phrase, speaking of our culture, disenchanted. He said that over the last several hundred years before that, that there had been a process of disenchanting our world as we anatomized and atomized everything. He said, in some ways, we have lost an enchanted worldview. So building on that, there was a guy who came along named Charles Taylor. And if you are looking for some nice light reading this week, uh, I recommend Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age. It's only 900 pages. And uh, so you should be able to get through it by tomorrow or the day after. But so he writes this huge book that's like so deep. I mean, like, and so another guy comes along who's he's a, a Pentecostal Anglican philosopher. His name was James K. Smith. I've mentioned him in the past. And so he took that book and he boiled it down. And he wrote a book called How Not to Be Secular. But even still, that book is, can be and feel up there. So another guy comes along and takes that book by James K. Smith. This guy's name is Mike Cosper. And he boils that book down and he wrote the book that is called, um, uh, what was it called? It was called Recapturing the Wonder. 
In fact, here is the book, Recapturing the Wonder. And it is an excellent book if you're interested in reading a book that you can understand that kind of talks about this idea. Um, This guy boiled it down after it was boiled down. You might think that all that's left after all that boiling down is just crust in the bottom of the pan. You know what I'm saying? But in reality, it was a rich sauce to begin with. Understanding what has happened in our world as over the last several hundred years with our artistic and scientific and religious reformation what has happened to our world. He wrote this book, uh, Recapturing the Wonder, and the first chapter is referred to or is called, um, it's called Discovering Our Disenchantment, which is where our title comes from today. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 41. So grab your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 41 today. Uh, Genesis chapter 41. Where we are reading this morning is the very next time that the Holy Spirit shows up after creation. If last week we read the creation story and the Holy Spirit was in a part of creation, calling out of chaos creation, if the Holy Spirit was breathed into humanity and as a result at the deep depths of who we are is the Holy Spirit, a part of our being is the Holy Spirit breathing into us that breath that was the Holy Spirit. If that is all true, then the very next time the Holy Spirit shows up is in Genesis 41, which is thousands of years later. And I don't know if you know this about the Holy Spirit, but a lot of times he'll show up in one spot and then he'll disappear for a while. This happens in Luke. He shows up, it seems, in Luke, uh, the creation, or not the creation, the, the birth narrative. He shows up and, and he overshadows Mary and then he speaks to Mary and he speaks to Elizabeth and then he speaks to uh, Anna and Simeon and, and then it says when Jesus is baptized that the Holy Spirit descends on him and then the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness and then it says Jesus comes back and he preaches the message where he uh, takes that Isaiah passage and applies it to himself and he says the Spirit of God has anointed me and then the Holy Spirit disappears from the narrative. He doesn't show back up until the end of Luke when Jesus starts making promises to his followers. He's gone for a large chunk, and Jesus is pushed to the forefront. Well, that same thing happens in Genesis, where it seems like he disappears. He's gone for a while. Starting in in Genesis chapter 2, it says that the Spirit is breathed into us, and then he disappears until he shows back up in Genesis chapter 41. And it's kind of in a weird spot. Because in Genesis chapter 41, this is the moment when Pharaoh has Joseph standing in front of him and says, hey, I had a couple of dreams. Will you interpret these? All right? And that's the story we're going to read. We'll just start right in verse 1, and I'm going to read all of it real quick. I'll skip a few sections because there's some repetition. Verse 1. Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. And then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, and these were scrawny and thin. This is why you should never trust skinny people. These cows stood beside the fat cows. It's in the Bible. Uh, Then these cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. And then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows. At this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. But he fell asleep again. And he had a second dream. And this time he saw seven heads of grain, plump and beautiful, plump and beautiful, praise the Lord, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared, and these were shriveled and withered by the east wind. But these thin heads swallowed up the seven plump, well-formed heads. Every bald man in here 
I'm sorry. That's what I think of my head. It is a plump, well-formed head. Then <laughs> woke up again and realized it was a dream. The next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dreams. So he called for the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. And when Pharaoh told them his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. And finally, the king's chief cupbearer uh, spoke up. Today I've been reminded of my failure, he told Pharaoh. Some time ago, you were angry with the chief baker and me, and you imprisoned us in the palace of the captain of the guard. One night, the chief baker and I each had a dream. And each dream had its own meaning. And there was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. And we told him our dreams. And he told us each of our, what each of our dreams meant. And everything happened just as he had predicted. I was restored to my position as a cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he had shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means, but I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. It is beyond my power. Literally, he says, it is not in me to do this. It is beyond what I can do. I don't have what it takes, but God can. I'm going to skip down to verse 25 because he tells him the dreams which you just heard, and so there's no reason to read them again. Verse 25, Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin, scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it. For God has revealed it to Pharaoh in advance of what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God, and he will soon make them happen. He interprets the dreams. The weight of his interpretation is on the famine, not on the prosperity. He, there are five sentences on the famine. There's one sentence on the prosperity. This is, he says, a warning of the famine that is to come. But before that famine comes, there is opportunity to prepare. Verse 33. Therefore, Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years, having them have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Now, this isn't a part of the dream. This is implications and logical conclusions that come from the interpretation of the dream. He says, hey, here's what I think you should do based on the information that is in front of you. Verse 37, Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man 
so obviously filled with the Spirit of God. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a rank higher than yours. And then he gives Joseph a new name, Zaphonath Paneah, verse 45. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paneah. He also gave him a wife whose name was Asenath, and she was the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. So Joseph is elevated to like vice president. But vice president more, I would say, based on understanding of what it actually must have looked like, uh, more of a, a vice president as in a company than a vice president as in a country. By that I mean that there was like a, there might be multiple vice presidents. You might have one president and you have 30 vice presidents, you know, and each of them have a specific area that they are responsible for. For Joseph, he wasn't over the army, but he was over all of the land and agriculture. And so he is kind of like second to the Pharaoh, but specifically in that particular area. And then he gives him a new name. Zaphonath Padam means God, God speaks and he lives. God speaks and he lives. Then he gives him a wife who is of this very influential priestly family of Egypt. So Joseph is elevated. This is towards the end of his story. Not all of it, but there's still more to come. But here is kind of a key moment in his life. And that verse 38 is the next time the spirit shows up. So Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God. It was Pharaoh who said it. Pharaoh's the one, the first one, after Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and 2, verse 7, is the first one to say, Spirit of God. He is the first one to say the words, someone filled with the Spirit of God. So on the lips of somebody who is not a part of the people of God, is the next kind of moment where the Spirit of God shows up. Because he is with Joseph for what? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Fifteen minutes? Maybe thirty minutes? And in that time, he recognizes something in Joseph that he says, this is obviously the Spirit of God. You and I can recognize that, right? Like, we know somebody, or we see somebody, and we say, ah, that is somebody who is obviously filled with the Spirit of God. Maybe it's the fruit of the Spirit that we see at work within them. We see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, and gentle, self-control. And we say, that's the guy. Or, or she's got it. She's got the Spirit of God. It's obvious there because we have a framework for understanding it. We can look at that situation. We can say, ah, that's somebody the Holy Spirit is obviously at work in. But here that Pharaoh has none of that. And yet he sees Joseph and says, here is someone in whom is the Spirit of God. And in some ways, Joseph set him up for that, right? He said, oh man, I can't do that. I can't do that. I, I don't have the ability to interpret a dream. That's not me. That's beyond what I can do. Only God can do that. Well, then when Joseph does it, 
then Pharaoh has to look at it and say, okay, so then obviously God is in this person, right? Like, so, so in some ways, Joseph sets this up, but there is also a way in which Pharaoh just looks at him and says, the spirit of God is in him. And there's two things, according to Pharaoh, that indicate it to him. Number one, there is the ability that he can interpret dreams. But number two, it says very clearly in verse 39, what it is that cues him in. He says, because clearly no one else is as intelligent or as wise as you are. He sees the spirit of God in Joseph because of his intelligence. And this is a big deal. Because in Job chapter 32, verse 8, it says that very thing. But there is a spirit within people, the breath of the Almighty within them, that makes them intelligent. When, when it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God breathed his spirit into humanity, one of the ways that that works its way outward is our ability to think. We think because he thinks, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I'm not in any way saying that's not the case, but still, we can think clearly because he thinks clearly. We are intelligent. We have intelligence because he is intelligent, right? We are in his image in this way. Our intelligence comes from him, and Proverbs refers to the spirit as the spirit of wisdom, right? That wisdom is crying out to us. When, when Moses prays for Joshua, it actually says that the spirit of wisdom rested on Joshua. In Isaiah 11, verse 2, when it's talking about the spirit that would be on Jesus, that spirit, it says, is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Our ability to think is the result of God at creation breathing into humanity. We think because he thinks. That's what it means to be made in his image. Now, I just finished my first doctoral course. I know. Thank you. <laughs> you guys are overwhelming in your response. I, I, Settle down now, everybody. Settle down. Finish that first course. Getting ready to start my second. Officially now, one semester in, I've already written out checks for $4,000. And I'm like, okay, I got four years of this. Am I sure this is the path I want to take, right? And I'm right in between classes. And I was taking it in the gut. I start on Wednesday again. Kids start school on Tuesday, which everybody, man, you guys are going to kill it this year. It's going to be a great year for you. It's going to be a great year for your family. God's going to use you in your circles. He's going to use you at your schools. He's going to work through you. Okay, guaranteed. He's going to use you. Okay, so I finished this one. Get ready to start my second. As part of this last class, there was one book that was way over my head. I mean, way over my head. I mean, this book, I was banging my head against this book forever. And I'm like day after day trying to work my way through it. If you think my sermons sometimes go right over your head, this book was way worse than that, okay? So I'm just like, I can't get this. I can't do it, right? And I'm over and over and over ahead. Keep, keep just trying and trying. And I just couldn't do it. One day, I'm just like, I got to stop for a moment. So I took the book. I put it down. I left my office. I headed upstairs, went to the kitchen, had dinner. I sit down for dinner, and I just told the family, I said, I'm trying to read this book, and this book was written for way smarter people than me, okay? And you know what my daughter said to me? My 13-year-old daughter said to me, there can't be too many of them. 
I'm like, so worth $4,000. I mean, like that alone, if nothing else, that moment right there was enough. There can't be too many of them. <laughs> so off I go back down to my office after dinner is over and I start reading that book again and I'm banging my head against this book and I'm banging my head against this book and I can't figure it out and I'm working on it and I'm thinking about it and it's not making any sense and then two-thirds of the way through all of a sudden it clicked and I went huh I see what you're saying now it is okay to come to the end of yourself because when you come to the end of yourself, you get to the beginning of him. And your intelligence, your ability to understand, is a direct result of his spirit inside of you. And when you come to the end of that, the very first thing you ought do is ask for more. And I do this regularly, every week. When I dive into scripture, I sit there and I look at it and I think about it and I pray about it and I bang my head against it. And at, at some point, every time, I come to the end of myself and I say, God, what are, you, what are you saying here? What are you saying today? What are you saying to your church at Praise Assembly? And it's then that the Spirit speaks. It's there that I understand. And here's the thing about you as believers. You and I, as believers, ought to be able to think. We should not be afraid of intelligence. We should lean in with everything we got. Why? Because it is the very Spirit of God who gives intelligence. And for us who have been sealed by that Spirit of God, we should lean into that. And then when there is something we don't understand, we come to the end of ourselves and we say, that's okay because this is the beginning of you. Oh God, give me understanding. Lean in when others pull back. And this is the type of thing that your boss will notice in you. This is the type of thing that your employee will notice in you. This is the type of thing that is visible to people around you. Your neighbors will see it in you. Your kids will see it in you. Your grandkids will see it in you because you will stick out because the Holy Spirit may not be visible, but he is certainly seen. He may not show up from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 41, but he is on every page. These words were inspired by him. He may be like the wind and you cannot know which way he is blowing, but you can see his effects. And you and I, by the Holy Spirit, should be in every situation seeking more wisdom and understanding and intelligence. When you come up against something you don't understand, come to that place. Don't be afraid to say, it's not in me to do this, because you will find him in that moment. That is the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture. Okay? That's the first thing I notice. Second thing I notice in this story is that at this point, Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. That is bar none. Like Far East, there's no nation that is as powerful as Egypt in this moment. Several hundred years later, there'll be some other nations that begin to rival it. But at this point, Egypt is number one, okay? And yet, the leader of the most powerful nation on earth has a dream. In fact, he has two of them. And what does he do? He looks for somebody to inter interpret his dream. And then he finds a guy in prison to do it. And because that guy does so good, 
he elevates him to the second most powerful place in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. This is preposterous. It's preposterous. Imagine today the president of the United States having a dream and calling a cabinet meeting. Imagine a photo from the situation room in the White House because the president had a dream, and so he's brought around all his advisors, and so they're discussing what the dream might be in the situation room. We in Western culture look at this and we say, okay, come on, really? Like this stuff could not actually happen, at least not today, not in the Western world. But for the vast majority of human history, prior to the last 300 years, this was the world that we lived in. It was not just a world that was atomized and anatomized, broken down to its component parts. It was a spiritual world. It was impossible before 300 years ago not to believe in God or the gods. It was impossible because it was obvious that we lived in a spiritual world. But now as we have broken things down and looked at them so closely, as Max Weber points out in the early 1900s, and Charles Taylor writes 900 pages about, and James K. Smith boils down, and then Mike Cosper boils down even more. This world is different than that world. But literally for thousands of years, this sort of thing might have happened because we lived in a spiritual world. Now we have a different view. Intelligence is just the result of our gray matter. Although we still haven't figured that one out, have we? It's still kind of beyond just biology, and we recognize that. We still haven't figured out what consciousness is or what that even means. Like, we understand, but we don't understand. We know, but it's still unknowable. And as much as we would say that an atom is smaller than a golf ball, the way the golf ball is smaller than the earth— Now we've realized that there are actually things smaller than atoms. That atoms aren't at the most basic level of building blocks. That in fact, it's particles, which are much smaller than atoms. And particles, man, they're weird. They come into being and they cease existing like that with no explanation. Or they move from here to there without going the distance in between. They just do it. And the moment you look at them, they change behavior. And it's all actually just energy. What we're finding out is that all of creation is actually far more unknowable than we ever imagined, certainly more beautiful. And that all those things that we thought we knew and had figured out, that in reality, we are just at the beginning of knowledge, that it is still beyond us. And there is more that we know now than we knew then. We know that the earth rotates around the sun. And we know how sunlight or light travels through the solar system. And we know how the gases in our atmosphere refract and bend that light. But in some ways, the knowledge of beholding a sunset is far more beautiful than all of that put together. That there is a knowing that is beyond just the breaking down That there is a knowing that is more beautiful and more aware of reality and our small place in a big world. And yet, also at the same way, the fact that God gave us intelligence to even be able to understand it all. And give us a platform on which to observe the entire universe. If earth were slightly different, we would not even be able to know that there are stars. And yet he gave us a place to be able to examine these things. 
And our intelligence is a result of the Holy Spirit's work inside of us. And sometimes we think because of our world and the fact that we know so much, we think the people who came before weren't smart. We think that somehow the people back then just didn't really know anything. They're all pretty kind of dumb. One of the presuppositions that I always bring to Scripture is this, that the people in the Bible were as smart as I am smart, that they know what they're talking about and they understand things. C.S. Lewis actually referred to the idea that maybe we've got it all figured out now, but everybody before us was kind of dumb. He called that chronological snobbery. Oh, Believe me, you are not as smart as C.S. Lewis, honey. I mean, like, and that's not even the best one. You want to know the best quote about that? The best quote's from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. He called it the arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. (laughs) I have never said anything that smart, and he is long dead. I mean, like, but he understood some things that you and I have yet to grasp. Pharaoh was smart, and he sees in Joseph intelligence and wisdom and the Spirit of God. And it is his ability to understand from what Joseph said, but then to piece together the fact that, wait a second, he's at the end of himself. He doesn't have it in him. Wait a second, that must be the Holy Spirit. That must be God himself inside of this person. Is there anybody else like this? No. Uh, We're going to put him in charge. That's amazing. But that's not even the the coolest thing I see in this. The coolest thing I see is that the Holy Spirit spoke to Joseph. He had done that his whole life. Doesn't say it, but Joseph had dreams when he was a kid. And those dreams were prophetic and they came to pass. And that's not the first time that happened. Same thing happened to Jacob, happened to others as well. It's just not saying, hey, this is the Holy Spirit doing this. But obviously it's the Holy Spirit doing this. That the Holy Spirit was working in all of that. But here's the kicker. The Holy Spirit spoke to Pharaoh. Right? He gave him dreams. Two dreams which were prophetic in nature. And he wasn't the first one in the story to have that happen. So did the baker and the cupbearer. They also had prophetic dreams as well. That the Holy Spirit spoke to people who were not believers. And they're not the only ones. God speaks to Abimelech, also in a dream. He speaks to Hagar and Laban and Pharaoh and Balaam and Naaman and the widow of Zarephath and Nebuchadnezzar and Pilate's wife. And you could go on and on and on. All through the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks to people who do not know him. And this is only the case more now than it was then when the Holy Spirit is calling people to know Jesus Christ. So I guess here's my second thought. Jesus shows up at no door unannounced. Jesus shows up at no door unannounced. That the Holy Spirit is always going before him, is always preparing the ground. I know you love your circles, and I know you want your friends and your coworkers and your family to know Jesus Christ. You love them, and you want them to know Jesus. But more than you love them, he loves them. 
And more than you want them to know Jesus Christ, he wants them to know Jesus Christ. And as much as you are working to reach them for the sake of the gospel, far more than you are, he is working to reach them for the sake of the gospel. Our job then is to join in what he is already doing. And you and I are are participants in a much larger conversation that God is having with them. And when you shift your responsibility in that way, knowing that you sometimes come to the end of yourself, but recognizing really that's where God is working. And you are just participating with him, that he is speaking and doing things in their lives. And sometimes he calls you to step right in the middle of that. Always you should be praying for it. Always you should be seeking that. But he is first and foremost doing that work. He is preparing the ground. Jesus shows up at no door unannounced. The Holy Spirit will always go before him. That's good. All right, final thought. The sky isn't falling. The sky is calling. Too often I think we can be focused on all the negative We can spend all our time crying that the sky is falling and too little time joining with the chorus of voices that cry out that God is calling the people of this world to faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying things aren't weird. They're weird. And I'm not saying that as believers we need We don't need to strengthen our hearts. Man, more than anything, I believe that. We need to be prepared. We need to be smart. We need to use the intelligence that God has given us. And Romans talks about the further we get away from him, the more our minds get darkened. But I am telling you also this. If you think believers are the only ones who see the weirdness that is going on in this world, you're wrong. Because there are people who are far from God who are intelligent because the Holy Spirit gave that to them that are stepping back and going, this really doesn't make sense. And do you know what the Holy Spirit is doing? Atheists and agnostics are coming to Christ Jesus because they look at the mess in the world and they go, okay, something is wrong here, something is broken, and here's a framework which makes sense of it all, and they are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the Holy Spirit is doing today. And the more we cry out and scream that the sky is falling, the more we become a part of the noise and part of the solution. I'll tell you right now, terror is attractive to no one. But faith, responsibility, and intelligence is. Those things are speaking deeply to people. And so I am convinced right now, when the world seems flat and disenchanted, that when things are happening that point to deeper truths, that boy, people are coming alive as a response to that. Pharaoh came, saw Joseph, and said, God speaks and lives. And people are doing that today, too. That they are looking and saying, wow, God speaks and he lives. And I believe this world is more ripe for a moving of the Holy Spirit and knowledge of Jesus Christ today than it was for the last hundred years that it has never been more ready. I truly believe that. 
And those who have experienced movings of God in that way in the past, good for you. I'm telling you, it's more right now than it was then. They are more ready because it doesn't make sense otherwise. And the Holy Spirit is still calling, and he is still drawing, and he is still speaking. And people's in, those who are aware or those who are seeking are, are being awakened to this truth. So what I am saying is, man, I'm excited. I know things look weird, and my perspective is not a head-in-the-sand blindness. It is an eyes-wide-open, faith-alive, dare-to-believe and a dare to dream, and a dare to be brave, because the Holy Spirit is at work within this world, and I get to be a part of that. And so I'm just saying, change your perspective. Change your perspective. I know sometimes it feels like the sky is falling, but I'm telling you, if you change your perspective, you will recognize that the sky is actually calling. That there are hearts that are beginning to light. There are people who are far from God who are beginning to turn to him. And your circles whom you have prayed for and prayed for and prayed for, and you have sought to be a part of God calling them, drawing them, and bringing them to Christ, that he is moving and he is having a conversation far deeper, far more vast, far greater implications than you could ever imagine. And you and I get to be a part of that. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's what it means to be those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be those who believe that the Holy Spirit gives intelligence. So rejoice in that. Pray for that. Seek the Holy Spirit to come and call and draw to Jesus Christ.